You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. With Ingridion, we're just fighting to maintain and keep what we have here today. On today's show, mill workers have now been out on strike for over a month in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. The checkout talks with Bakery Workers International Rep Jason Davis to find out why. Witnessing the rescue recovery workers working the way we were, remember with the white buckets and our gloved hands just tearing away at the steel, trying to do something positive. I I think the city took courage from that. I think our country took courage from that. Union construction workers and members of the fire and police department in New York City developed a strong bond working together on New York's 9-11 recovery mission. Years later, many of them are now retired and they're putting their knowledge and skills to work to help those in need. On the latest Union is Strong podcast, Bill Keegan, founder and president of Heart 9-11, talks about the mission of the organization and what drives workers to pay it forward. We are so connected to these devices and dependent in a way that we're ignorant to. And so we end up playing the role of whether it's therapist or teacher or rescuer or, or, or scapegoat to like funnel people's you know, emotions at because of whatever has happened with this or their relationship with this stuff. In June of this year, more than 100 Apple Store employees in Towson, Maryland, a suburb of Baltimore, voted to unionize by a nearly two to one margin, making it the first Apple Store to unionize. Their union's called the Coalition of Organized Retail Employees, or Apple Corps, and the Empathy Media Lab podcast talks with Apple Corps union's Billy Jarbo. All workers, regardless of immigration status, have the same rights under the National Labor Relations Act. From El Cafecito del Dia, organizing while undocumented. How undocumented workers can benefit from the higher wages, benefits, and protections that come with a union contract. I see this action both as concerning the gliders in the forest, which are dear to me, but as part of this greater systemic ecological collapse that we're undergoing. And we need to be taking action everywhere. Next. We go to Australia for Solidarity Breakfast interview with Forest Defenders Against Vic Forest and find out why ordinary people need to take radical action to defend nature. For the first time in Colombia's history, we elected a leftist government. It all started with a big strike that was actually called by the unions in the country. Our final segment takes us to Colombia, where union activist and labor lawyer Mary Laura Perdomo told the Solidarity Center podcast how a vibrant labor movement is the key to thriving democracies. Because unions reduce economic inequality, strengthen the social safety net, and unite diverse groups. That's all coming up on this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. And if you like what you hear, help build the Labor Radio Podcast movement, take a moment to subscribe and share the show Sonic Solidarity Works. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. Welcome to the checkout, Jace Davis. 
international representative of BCTGM, Bakers, Confectioners, Tobacco, Grain Millers Union. Thanks so much for making time for us today. Oh, no problem, Merrill. Thank you for having, a, having me. You know, I started off with, with Local 218. Um, I've, I've, been on, I've been on a number of strikes in my career with the BCTGM. And uh, you could tell, you could tell last year out there in Topeka, things were different. Things were different, different in a few ways. Um, you know, one way that workers, workers were set up to a point where um, they were ready to stand up for what they deserved and what they wanted. I've been reading a bit about uh, a strike at a company called Ingredion uh, for BCT Gem. So tell us a little bit about what Ingredion is, what they make, what they do. Ingredient is significantly different than the strikes that uh, that we had last year. You know, when you think of Frito Lay, uh, Nabisco, uh, Kellogg, John Denier. Um, ingredient here is a uh, it's a cornstarch manufacturer in Cedar Rapids. Uh, so they bring in corn, uh, steep it, and they produce a cornstarch. The majority of their cornstarches go to um, go to corrugated cardboard boxes. It goes towards uh, the production of paper. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. I've learned so much working with these folks. You know, that with paper, you get the pulp, uh, you get some clay, but then you need the cornstarch in order to um, keep the pen, keep the ink from the pens from running. Uh, the cornstarch will also control the glossiness, uh, the thickness of the paper, uh, that sort of thing. Um, so it's not really a product that everyday Americans are, are used to. But it's something that's in the hands of everyday Americans every day. Um, you know, one of the large, they have, they have a few large um, customers with uh, international paper, Georgia, Georgia Pacific, um, Amazon. Chances are your Amazon, Amazon cardboard boxes that come to your house if you're ordering off Amazon uh, has some cornstarch in it. Uh, and it's part of the ingredients towards making those boxes. Uh, so this, this production facility here uh, focuses on those types of cornstarches. They also have some byproducts they put out for animal feed and, and things of that nature. I mean, we have 100, we have 120 bargaining unit employees here. I believe there's about 150 to 160 that work at this facility here in Cedar Rapids. Uh, Ingredient um, worldwide has, deploys about 12,000 employees. Um, so it's not not a huge company, um, but not not a terribly small company either. It, uh, they've uh, made enough money to have $86 million worth of stock buyback so far this year. So, you know, <laughs> nothing like a little upward wealth distribution. They, they, amen there, Errol, you know, and that's, and that's been the, uh, you know, the sickening piece throughout all the strikes last year. And this one's uh, really not a whole lot different than the ones last year's. These companies have made record profits off of the work rules and the contracts that they have in place today. Uh, yet there's a, a select few of them that come to the table insisting on take backs from the employees during times like this. And, um, you know, it's, it, it, for someone like me, it's, it's just a disgusting thing. You know, you, the company's doing just fine with the work rules we have. Um, you know, and in a lot of cases like the Nabisco, uh, and a large portion of this contract at this point, uh, with ingredient, we're just fighting to maintain and keep what we have here today. It's not that we are uh, fighting to expand our contract or um, or push uh, push unreasonably back against the company. I've been talking to a lot of workers around the country who are fed up, and the reason why they're going on strike is that 
things are being taken away from them despite the company's success. I mean, that's, that's the shame about, you know, what, what is happening these last few years as, as well as, you know, it sounds like a lot with a lot of these policies that they're trying to implement through these contract clawbacks and, and changes. Um, it, it sounds like a lot of the, the efficient labor practices that have, uh, happened in, in a lot of other industries, auto industries, um, you know, uh, grocery, retail, automated fulfillment, where they're, they're, they just want to be able to manage the workforce to, to the bottom line in the most efficient, productive way possible without regard to work-life balance or, or happiness or, or even retention. The company will try to say that uh, they're trying to provide a work-life balance with 12-hour shifts. Uh, you get additional days off, but you know, in my experience, when you move to a 12-hour shift, uh, I'm sure it looks good on paper, but in reality, when it actually works out, it doesn't work out. You know, that was a big piece that, that drove us to the streets of Topeka. Uh, we had wage classifications uh, there in Frito-Lay that hadn't received an increase for 10 years. They got bonuses for 10 years and, um, and that led them to the streets. The members here, they, they've been very clear. They don't want bonuses. They want to see a wage increase. When we voted in a total democratic system, um, private, and it, was a, and it was a secret ballot election. The, there was zero votes for the last best and final offer. Not a soul in the bargaining unit wanted the last best and final offer. And on that morning they voted, uh, they turned right back around and voted um, uh, very overwhelmingly, 96%, to go ahead and initiate the strike with Ingridion. And they walked out that morning. So... Um, you know, the solidarity and the resolve of our local 100G members here amazes me. And, um, I couldn't be any prouder to serve with if I really could. It's, uh, you know, that uh, members all around our, all around our international union, all around this Midwest are the same, you know, are the same way. We've been getting so much support out here with, uh, community support, with labor support, uh, with our other BCTGM locals, uh, with Teamsters, with IBEW with our Hawkeye Labor Council, uh, and that keeps us going day to day. It really does. It keeps these members going and fighting in order to just, to, fighting to keep what they had, quite frankly. I can't thank you enough for, for helping put our, uh, our story and, uh, and our fight out in the media as well. Um, you know, it means a lot for our, for our members as well. So thank you. Thank you for uh, taking the time to, to work on this today with us too. Yeah, our pleasure, Jason. Thanks for being on the checkout. All right. Thank you, Errol. If there's anything else I, that I can help with, we get updates or whatnot, I'll be glad to let you know. My name is Evan Papp, and I'm the executive producer of Empathy Media Lab, and we produce content on labor, political economy, art, and culture, and we're a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Today, I'm speaking with Billy Jarbo, who is with the Apple Coalition of Organized Retail Employees, known as Apple Corps. And he also works at and helped organize an Apple store in Towson, Maryland, which became the first Apple store in the nation to unionize in June 2022. Apple Corps is part of the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers Union. And Billy, thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. It's good to be here. So could we begin by you introducing yourself, your background, and uh, how you started working at this store? Uh, yeah. Um... Well, my background pre-Apple was I was an athlete um, through at least half a college. And then I was at a spot where I was basically sort of injured and I was kind of coming back from that. And I was like, do I try to finish out these last two years while playing baseball, which was my sport? Or, you know, do I try to just 
basically get a job and move out and do that whole thing. And uh, I had a friend that were, or I still friends with him, um, friend from high school that worked at Apple at the time. Um, and basically in his situation, used Apple to get himself going with his video stuff and then ended up being able to do that. Um, so that was really inspiring and cool. But he basically referred me. We were, we had overlap for a couple of months before he ended up, you know, doing his video stuff. But, but yeah, um, that when I got the job at Apple summer 2010, pretty much marked me stopping the baseball path and, you know, starting the working path. <laughs> yeah. So what, what was the process of everyone coming together? Because I, looking at um, this news article from Maryland Matters, it said that you voted and it was a two to one uh, vote in favor of the union, 65 workers voting in favor, 33 opposing it. So what was this process? Because a lot of people have no experience or background in union organizing, have never been in a union. Um, what got people motivated to, to start wanting to organize? Well, I think at the base level, it was the type, well, two things at once. It's the type of work that we do and the, and specifically for us, the, the amount of tenure that we have, like the amount of people that have been there multiple years, five years, 10 years. I mean, lots of folks, including myself, I, I have 12 years, I hit 12 years this past month, July. And, uh, yeah, so that in and of itself sets the stage for I guess being on the same page and, and having this thing, you can't rush that kind of history with each other, you know? Um, and then of course aligned with like the nuance of the work that we do. It's not, it is just glossed over as retail, but it's, we are so connected to these devices and dependent in a way that we're ignorant to. And so we end up playing the role of whether it's therapist or teacher or her rescuer or, or scapegoat to like funnel people's, you know, emotions at because of whatever has happened with this or the relationship with this stuff. Yeah. It's just a lot to bear. And I think what allowed us the time to know, at least for me to notice like what, what had happened and then what can we do going forward was the COVID break. Apple is, you know, of course, wealthy enough that they weren't going to let us all go. Right. So they kept us afloat. Uh, you know, we did this weird work from home hybrid and all this kind of stuff. And I mean, that was several months though. And for a lot of us, like myself, it was the most break that we've had. I mean, yes, you get your vacations and you get your like token two days off, but we know that that, you know, 40 day work week is outdated. And these types of topics, um, were already spoken about amongst each other. You know, we've already sort of played with those ideas of, you know, we know that we're, playing a part of this like we can I, as far as like we get paid more and you know we're making billionaires so much money and all this kind of stuff those ideas and so yeah COVID happened it gave us all a break and uh we tried to band together and use our internal platforms to raise our voice and it just didn't it just felt like the same pattern of performative get us together to just talk about all whatever is ailing us and then but also to not see any action. And so for me also was like, just so hard to have debt, you know, decades worth of these round tables and we talk about our thing and then just nothing happens, you know, and, or, you know, things happen that are just, I can see in hindsight, conveniently aligned with they were already going to do anyway. And, you know, Apple's a very smart, they have a lot of resources. And as was mentioned during our anti-union campaign, they've had a long standing history with Littler Mendelssohn, this advanced union busting law firm that 
they get preempted with these tactics. And I can see, of course, see all that in hindsight, like it's like union proofing almost like to not even get people to question their circumstances enough to think that it could be better. Even though when you think about how much we give and how much we get and are still struggling, whether it's debt or just paycheck to paycheck idea like that, that those are the things that really have worn on us. And again, when you had the COVID break, you had a little bit of a, a healing from that happen. And then we have so many examples of decisions being made that absolutely have no, have a direct effect on us, but no, we're not included in that, you know, process at all. And it's, a, it's just so many examples of that over and over in this like, gaslighting sort of idea of like, oh, we want to hear your feedback, but it's not being integrated. Billy Jarbo, he is with the Apple Coalition of Organized Retail Employees known as Apple Corps. Thanks so much for your time. Hey, thanks, Evan. Bienvenidos. Welcome to El Cafecito del Día. Brought to you by the Labor Council for Latin American Advancement, our conversations are inspired by the moments of togetherness that nuestra comunidad shares over un cafecito. Hola, my name is Maria Hernández, and today we'll be sharing this cafecito with Stephanie Sepúlveda, Immigration and Labor Specialist at the AFL-CIO. Today, we will discuss what you need to know about unionizing while undocumented. Hello, Stephanie. Thank you for coming in to speak with us. Our first question is, can undocumented workers legally form or join a union? Absolutely. All workers, regardless of immigration status, have the same rights under the National Labor Relations Act. And what that means is that undocumented workers have the right to organize, to join a union, and to take action to improve their working conditions. That being said, we all know that the sad reality is that employers routinely hire undocumented workers with a wink and a nod and then fire them when they seem to organize or to complain about unsafe working conditions or unpaid wages. And when undocumented workers work up the courage to take a stand at work, employers are still able to retaliate in ways that can set de deportation proceedings in motion. That's why it's critical that we keep fighting for a path to citizenship for everyone who lives and works in this country. So keeping in mind this possible retaliation, why is it important for undocumented workers to join unions? This is a great question, and it comes down to the union difference. When working people come together, they make things better for everyone. Joining together in unions enables workers to negotiate higher wages and benefits and improve working conditions no matter their immigration status. We know that collective bargaining agreement is one of the most effective protections that any worker can have. A union contract is especially important for immigrants. We know that Latinos earn more and have more protections when they join a union. Beyond having more access to things like retirement benefits, medical care benefits, and paid leave, higher wages, all those things that are extremely important. One of the best correctives for the page and benefit gaps or disparities that exist in our economy for Latino and other marginalized workers is a union contract especially with undocumented 
immigrants, we know that bosses routinely use the threat of immigration enforcement as a tool to keep workers scared and to keep workers silent. It's still important for undocumented workers to know that they have the same rights as everyone else, the same labor rights, and that unions are here to help them. So we know unions can support undocumented workers through labor disputes, and that labor disputes typically occur when there's a disagreement between an employer and an employee, usually over issues around working conditions or compensation. What are the steps that undocumented workers should take when engaging in labor disputes? As we said, undocumented workers have labor rights just like every other worker in this country, and that's very important to keep front of mind. There are steps that they can take to ensure that they're protected. So first, we recommend that workers come together rather than working alone, right? So community and union organizers can help and they're here to help, especially if they're familiar with the new protections that are available. Secondly, it's very important to get in touch with an attorney who can provide legal advice along the way. And that shouldn't be to deter you from, you know, taking action, but just to have, you know, that safeguard in place. Being engaged in a labor dispute is what makes workers eligible for potential status protections, which is quite an interesting thing about this dynamic that exists. So whether you're fighting to reclaim stolen wages, form a union, to stop sexual harassment, to bring in a contract, to address safety hazards or anything in between, it is being engaged in that will make you eligible for those protections. As individuals engage in this process, it's very important to document any direct or indirect employer threats any discrimination, any retaliation against immigrant workers, any threat of like ICE will be called or anything like that should be documented because that will be very important. When the time is right, you should seek support from a labor agency and that could be the Department of Labor, it could be the NLRB, it could be the EOC, or it could even be a state or local labor agency, depending on the dispute. Mm. So after securing support from that labor agency, then individuals can begin a process with DHS and then it's sub-agency USCIS, Citizenship and Immigration Services. The most common request is to seek something called deferred action. Deferred action protection basically means for a specific period of time, that individual will not be deported and then will get the possibility to remain in the United States for a specific period of time while they're engaged in this labor dispute. So it's actually a huge and highly beneficial protection that is given to undocumented workers or any other immigrant worker that is engaged in labor dispute. Stephanie, the time you spent with us helped to sweeten lo que a veces seems like a better cup of coffee. And as we all know, once you wake up and smell the cafecito, you just can't go back to sleep. On behalf of LACLA, thank you for sharing your wisdom and your knowledge. Hasta la próxima. You're with Annie on... 3CR Solidarity Breakfast, and uh, we've got Mark on the line. G'day, Mark. How are you? I'm well, Annie. How are you? Good. Now, you, earlier this month, you were a very busy boy. You were locked on at uh, the Lama Logging Coop, and it's in resistance to Clearfell Logging Habitat of the uh, Greater Glider. Can you talk to our, our listeners about what's going on there? Yes, so the Greater Glider is uh, one of the most gorgeous little critters in our native forests, um, and it is an endangered species. And the Greater Glider lives in mature native forests, so that's old-growth trees. Um, and so this is, you know, old-growth trees are not a resource that we can get back simply by reforestation. 
Um, so there's been an injunction against logging coops with greater spider sightings in them um, in a, as part of a court case. Um, but Vic Forest successfully managed to somehow get three coops rescheduled um, despite having greater gliders in them. Uh, and so um, by way of demonstrating our continued resistance against this destruction, um, we, well, I decided um, that I couldn't let that happen. Yeah, because as you point out, uh, it falls to ordinary people to take radical action to uh, protect uh, forests that have more value than just the uh, planks that they are made from them when they're felled. That's right. Yeah, and a lot of a lot of the native forest logging that's going on is going to pallets and wood chips and paper. Um, so it basically ends up in landfill. That eighty-five percent of it ends up in landfill after one or two uses. Well, a couple of years ago. I stood on the steps of Victoria Parliament because there was this big announcement saying that there'd be no more logging in state forests. Uh, but then it was 2030 that that was when it was going to cease. Yes. But we're running out of time, aren't we? Well, uh, uh, it seems to be the approach of uh, of Vic Forest to make sure that there is no state forest left to log by 2030. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. It's like it's like uh, we're running out of the string that's going to hold us to uh, in safety. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, what happened to you? Tell tell us, give us a, a word picture of what actually happened on the day. Um, so um, I was with a, a group of stalwarts um, entered the coop in the very early morning. Um, as a as a habitual night owl, I, I can't tell you how challenging this was. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's probably the worst part of the whole experience. Um, and then, um, yeah, I, with a, a steel device, a welded steel device, I uh, locked my arms around a logging, like an excavator, I think they're called, uh, a harvester, I think they're called. Um, they're actually pretty brutal machines, aren't they? Because they do swaste through the... Um, the uh, logs, don't they? The trees. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, they are they are terrifying machines and rather large. Um, uh, we sort of heard and saw from the authorities, uh, Vic Forest and then Game Management Police um, and Vic Police, uh, Vic Pol. At various points throughout the day, um, they sort of came and went. There's, those those three bodies have different levels of authority and different, you know, ability to act uh, in logging coops. And so um, there, there came a certain point where uh, I would have been removed if I weren't locked on, so I locked on for good, as it were. Um, and then I stayed there with various authorities um, doing their level best to convince me to unlock for about four hours um, until about one o'clock in the afternoon um, when... Uh, I guess I'd had enough, and, um, and yeah, I unlocked myself. And then I gave a quick interview to Nick Pohl, um, was, yeah, gave my identity, um, and then uh, was allowed to leave. They sort of walked me 50 metres down the road and told me to keep going. We just got some information that uh, there's a blockade at, uh, uh, in the Rubicon where they're trying to protect the... Uh, 
uh, Rubicon and Royston River Valleys. It's, it's very similar to what you have been trying to get people to understand that this we're, we're in the middle of a cascading, potential cascading ecological disaster here. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I've, I've been a campaigner against um, climate change uh, for some years. And I see this action, um, you know, both as concerning the, the gliders in the forest, um, which are dear to me, but uh, as part of this greater systemic ecological collapse that we're undergoing. And we need to be taking action everywhere um, and in every sphere of life, in every industry, um, in every level of government to hold this absolute disaster that we are living through already. Thank you very much for talking to me this morning. Yeah, no worries, Annie. Thanks very much for having me. Hello, sisters and brothers, and welcome to the Solidarity Centre podcast, an interview show that highlights and celebrates the individuals working for labour rights, the freedom to form unions and democracy across the globe. I'm your host, Shauna Bader-Blau. September 15th is not a well-known date, but it should be. September 15th is International Democracy Day. And now, more than ever, we need to understand how we advance and keep democratic freedoms, like the right to speak openly, protest peacefully, and participate fully in our communities. One thing we know for sure is that there is a clear connection between vibrant labor movements and thriving democracies. Our first guest, Mary Laura Perdomo, a labor lawyer and trade unionist in Colombia, tells us how unions, together with young people and indigenous and black communities, achieved the election last month of the country's first progressive government. Mary Laura has been an integral part of the multi-year democratic process that unified people around their basic rights like decent wages, accessible health care, and an end to discrimination, and the violence that has visited union leaders far too often in South America. Let's hear now from Mary Laura, my sister at the Solidarity Center and a lawyer at the International Lawyers Assisting Workers or ILA Network. Hi, everybody. Pleasure to be here. My name is Mary Laura Perdomo. I'm a labor lawyer from Colombia, and actually I'm the regional coordinator for Latin America and the Caribbean for the ILO Network, which is a global network of lawyers assisting workers. This year, we had two very important elections in Colombia. We had our elections to the Congress of the Republic, which is our parliament, and we had our presidential elections. And for the first time in Colombia's history, we elected a leftist government. But not only that, we also elected as vice president a woman who comes from the one of the most marginalized sectors of society in Colombia, an environmental warrior, a black woman. And it's, I can't stress this enough, it's the first time in the history of Colombia that we've chosen an alternative, progressive, leftist government. There are several factors that explain why we got to elect this leftist government and why we have such an environmental warrior as a vice president and someone who also fights for the rights of those who have been marginalized. The first factor is that there was a big social revolution, and it's part of a chain of big social upheaval that was happening all over Latin America, and that changed the uh, the, uh, the, the proportion of leftist governments in, in the region. 
So it all started with a big strike that was actually called by the unions of the, in the country and in the uh, last months of 2019. And it was a call to strike in response to the deep inequality and the armed conflict that we had been suffering for a long time. And also you have to understand that the job market in Colombia is, is composed of 70% of people who live in the informal sector. So when social distancing measures were enforced, these 70% of people did not have a way of making money. And so we also had a problem with our healthcare system because it had been privatized. It was not functioning properly, so it could not help people when they needed it the most, and that resulted in more deaths. And so in 2021, the unions decided to call again for another strike that was fed by the, the uh, 2019 strike that had been cut short by the pandemic. So this big social energy took over the cities, took over the whole country. And when they saw that the government was doing absolutely nothing to respond to all this, this pushed, this pushed Colombian people over the edge. That's when they decided that they needed to change everything that had not been working until then. That's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the more than 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to the shows you heard today in the show notes for this podcast. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org, and you can also find them by using the hashtag Labor Radio Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon and me. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website, laborradionetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show.